So let's go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath day and for the opportunity to study your word. Bless us now as we study from the book of Hebrews. And may it enlighten our minds for the truths of our time. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, and with our book classes, it is a little more interactive, so I'll have some of you reading verses. You can ask questions, make comments, and we have a microphone for that. So just a reminder of that. <clears throat> and um, we got through chapter 2 last week. We kind of got into chapter 3, um, an introduction into that. But basically what we've seen so far, chapter 1 shows that Jesus truly is God. Chapter, true, chapter 2 shows that Jesus truly is man. And he was made in all things like his brethren. His brethren are those who are sanctified. So we studied that last week. And this week we're going to look at chapter 3 and chapter 4. And let's go ahead and um, have a volunteer to read Hebrews 3 verses 1 to 3. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 1 to 3. I may call on someone. Roger, if you could read Hebrews chapter 3 verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he, he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. Okay. <clears throat> Now, if you look at chapter 3, the first six verses compare Christ to Moses, and then verses 7 to 19 show how Israel hardened their hearts against God during their experience in the wilderness. And basically, what we've seen so far, and we've talked about this, um, in chapter 1, Christ is better than the angels. He is God. Chapter 2, Christ is better than man. Chapter 3, Christ is better than Moses. And, um, ch you know, chapter 5, we'll see that he's a better high priest. Chapter um, 7, we'll see he's better than the Levitical priesthood. Chapter 8, we see there's a better covenant. But here we see Christ is better than Moses. And yet Moses is being exhorted for his faithfulness. So it's not like Moses is being put down. It's just that Christ is better. And <clears throat> we talked about this last week as well, briefly, Chapter 1 and chapter 2 show us that because Christ is God and because Christ is man, he is the apostle and high priest of our profession. And his title is Christ Jesus. Christ is the name associated with his divinity. Jesus is the name associated with his humanity. Now, we already kind of covered this last week, so I'm going to keep moving here. Um, so Christ is worthy to be our high priest and our apostle. He's better than Moses. Moses was counted worthy of glory, but Christ of more glory. And then let's have a volunteer to read verses 4 to 6. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, right back there. <clears throat> For every house is builded by some man, but he that build all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were, spoken at, were to be spoken after. 
but Christ as his son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Okay. Now, what Paul is doing here is very important because this is written in the 60s AD, the first century, and the Jewish Christians are still keeping the ceremonial Mosaic law. And what Paul is saying is, look, Moses was faithful and the house that he built was good, but what Christ has built is better. So let's not get stuck in something that was built by a good man that pointed to something that was better, that was going to come, and now it has come. And so that's basically what Paul is saying here. And he is telling us that Christ is the son over his own house, and we are part of that house if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of hope firm unto the end. And if you go to Romans 8, it talks about how we are the sons of God when we accept Christ, when we walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. And so Christ is the one who builds all things. So yes, Moses may have built the house during his time, but really he was just doing what God told him. And then when Jesus came, he built a better house, so to speak. And that is the the way of salvation that Christ established as our Savior, as our Apostle and High Priest. Now, on the basis of that, in these first six verses, what Paul is showing us is that Christ is better than Moses. So if Christ is better than Moses, even though Moses was a good man, at this point in earth's history, who should we be following? We should be following Christ. And on the basis of that, Paul then gives a warning to his readers. And that warning is just as true today as it was when he wrote this back then. And it starts in verse 7. And I'd like a volunteer to read verses 7 to 10. Hebrews 3, 7 to 10. Let's see here. Joel, why don't you read Hebrews 3, 7 to 10. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty days. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart. They have not known my ways. Read verse 11. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Okay. So, verse 7 starts off. This is the Holy Ghost speaking. And Paul is actually quoting from Psalms 95. And the interesting point about this is Psalms 95 is written after the children of Israel entered into the promised land. And yet, in Psalms 95, it says that the children of Israel did not enter into God's rest. So, if Psalms 95 says that the children of Israel didn't enter into God's rest, it's not talking really about entering into Canaan exclusively. That was just the place that they were trying to go. But they were in the promised land 
when Psalms 95 was written and the psalmist is saying, they shall not enter into my rest. And now Paul is quoting it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say, hey, they shall not enter into my rest. And he's using it to say, today, listen to the Holy Spirit again and hear God's voice. And this message is true for us as well. And he says, harden not your hearts. And it's so easy for humanity to harden their hearts against the voice of the Holy Spirit. And notice then what it says, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years. Now, <clears throat> what Paul is saying here is, is that the children of Israel saw the works of God for 40 years. And after 40 years, by verse 10, he still says, I was grieved with that generation and said, they do always err in their heart. Now that's a sad story. That God's people, these are the people who saw the Red Sea opened supernaturally. They saw God come down to Sinai. They saw the earth shake. They heard the voice of God. They saw the law given. They saw manna miraculously fall on the ground every day except the Sabbath for 40 years. And yet the indictment of that generation after 40 years was they do always err in their heart. And Paul is saying to us, hey, you know what? That may, that's not just the case of that generation. It can be the case of our generation if we ignore or provoke God the way they did. Now, the question is, what did they do to provoke God to wrath? <clears throat> you, can see, you can see it in the history. Right after the Red Sea experience, they come to Mara and they say, God let us out here in the wilderness to die. And they meant it. They weren't just saying it. They meant it. And then, second time, after the, the, the water in Mara is turned from bitter to sweet, then they come into the wilderness. There's no water again, and they say the same thing. Then after the manna's been provided for a while, they complain about the manna. So then God sends them a quell, and it kills a lot of them. Then when the spies go into, and this isn't necessarily in chronological order, but then when the spies go to scout out the promised land, 10 of the 12 say that we can't overcome the land, that there's giants in the land, and we cannot conquer that land. Mind you, they've seen the Red Sea parted and the Egyptians destroyed when they were surrounded and boxed in. They've had their temporal needs provided. Their shoes and their clothes did not wear out supernaturally. They knew that that couldn't happen naturally. All of those things, and yet they continue to doubt God. And finally, at the end of the 40 years, they provoked God for a final time when they ran out of water again, God tested them again, and this time they actually made Moses lose his temper, which of course there was no excuse for, so that kept him out of the promised land, and they were still doubting the promises of God. And so after 40 years, after all of that, God says, they do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, so I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. 
Now, <clears throat> as a practical application for each one of us, <clears throat> God tested the Israelites in each one of those situations to see how they would respond to that test. He had given them plenty of evidence for them to know that God can work to do things in a powerful and supernatural way. Red Sea, bitter water to sweet, water coming out of a rock, all of those things. And yet, every time they were tested, they said, we can't get out of this one. How about us? We've had moments in our life where God has clearly provided for us. Maybe we needed a job. Maybe it was when we found the truth for the first time and everything came together and it all made sense. And so then God has given us evidence of his love, of his power, to show that he will provide for us. And then he tests us to see what our faith will demonstrate. And are we faithful or are we like the children of Israel? So a trial comes along and it seems like a pretty bad one this time. And what's our reaction? Do we say, you know what, I'm not sure if God's ever been with us. That was just luck that we got a, a job and our needs were provided for when everything was closing in on us. But that, that was just a lucky break that time. But this time, I can clearly see that God's not with us. What's our reaction like when we get tested? Because we see that God, after 40 years with this generation, after he provided for them time and again, and then when every time they, test, they were tested, they said, I'm not sure if... God really is there, or he's led us out here to die. It says God was provoked to wrath, and he swore in his wrath that these people would not enter into his rest. Now, <clears throat> the, uh, if you're just reading through this for the first time, you say, oh, well, that must be speaking of entering into the promised land, but actually, it's more than that. So let's read a few more verses here. <clears throat> Actually, and the way I know that is when you get to Hebrews 4, it says, for if Joshua had given them rest, then would he not have spoken of another day? So what that shows is, yeah, Joshua got the children of Israel into the promised land, but they didn't enter into rest anyway. So let's continue on here, picking up in verse 12, and let's go through verse 15. So Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 15, a volunteer right down here Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 through 15 take heed uh, brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God but exhort one another daily while it is called today lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end, while it is said today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the pro provocation. Okay, thank you. So the message to us today is take heed, lest any of us have a heart of unbelief like the children of Israel did back then. So what was the problem? It was a heart of unbelief, not believing that God could do what he said he could. Um, 
And yet in verse 14 he says, We are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. And so what that tells us is like each one of us had a beginning in our faith with God. And all of us are going to be tested just like the children of Israel were tested. It may be in a different way. But the key is to hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. And there may be some of us here that are going through severe trials, through tough times. But what Paul is saying is hold on to Christ steadfastly, just as you did at the beginning of your experience, all the way until the end. And if you do, you will enter into the rest that God has promised to each one of us. And then he says, Wallace said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. Now I want to volunteer to read verses 16 to 19. Hebrews 3, verses 16 to 19. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Okay. Now notice this. It says, so, um, so sir, someone they had heard God's word, they provoked him. And he says, but notice this. How be it not all that came out of Egypt by Moses? And the question is, how many people entered into the promised land that left Egypt? Two people. Joshua and Caleb. Two people. And so you have, I don't know, over a million people who died in the wilderness. And the two people who entered in get equal recognition as all those who didn't enter in. So what that shows us is that God notices those who are faithful, even if there's one or two of you. And you'll get, Joshua and Caleb get special mention in the Bible for entering into God's rest, even though the rest of the children of Israel didn't. And so that should be an encouragement to us. Let's not get the Elijah syndrome and say, I'm the only one left. Well, there were two that went from Egypt to Canaan, and they got special commendation in the Word of God, in the book of Hebrews. Um, And we see that those who did not enter in were those who did not believe. Now that's pretty straightforward, so I wanted to move through that quickly. Hebrews 4 is really where, and Hebrews 3 is important, Hebrews 4 continues on with this thought, and what Hebrews 4 then talks about is, how do we enter in to God's rest? Here's a whole generation of God's chosen people who saw his wonders. I mean, how many of us have seen the Red Sea parted literally? How many of us have heard God spoke from Mount Sinai? How many of us have eaten manna literally day day by day? Well, maybe not the way the children of Israel did, but those of us who are living today in earth's history, we have seen the power of God start the second advent movement which God raised up to take a group of people from spiritual Egypt to spiritual Canaan so what Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4 are saying to us is just as relevant if not even more relevant and so Hebrews 4 says how do we enter in to God's rest so I want to volunteer to read verses 1 to 4 of Hebrews chapter 4 Hebrews chapter 4 Verses 1 through 4. 
Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, So I declared in my oath in anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has, begun, has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. Okay. <clears throat> so chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Now, Paul, in the immediate sense, was concerned about the Jewish Christians in the 60s AD who were hanging on to the Jewish traditions and were not following after Christ. And he was afraid that they were going to harden their hearts and hang on to the Jewish traditions the way that people in the wilderness hardened their hearts against Christ. And in order for the Jewish Christians to not harden their hearts, they needed to fully accept Christ and follow him and to the rest that he was offering. But there's more to it than just them. It's also for us that a promise of entering into God's rest has been given to us. And the question is, what is that promise? And, you know, verse 2 talks about how the gospel is preached to us as well as to those in the wilderness, but it didn't profit them because it wasn't mixed with faith for those who heard. We see that God or those who do believe, enter into God's rest. And then we see about how he talks about creation. And verse 4 is the key here. It says, For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And then I'll read verse 5. Verse 5 says, In this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. <clears throat> so the question is, where do we find God's rest? <clears throat> the seventh day sabbath and the question is why do we find god's rest in the seventh day sabbath it says god did rest the seventh day from all his works it says and in this place again if they shall enter into my rest and <clears throat> if you skip down to verse 10 and we'll come back to that later it says for he that has entered into god's rest he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. So what happened on the Sabbath? God rested from his works. He created the world in six literal days. And by the way, if you don't believe in the, the biblical account of creation, you're not going to be able to understand how to enter into God's rest. Because Paul's using the biblical account of creation to show how to enter into God's rest. So... God made the world in six literal days. He rested the seventh day from all his works. And then in verse 10 it tells us, those who enter into God's rest, we cease from our own works as God did from his. Now what's the significance of ceasing from our own works? I mean, the Bible tells us that our righteousness is as filthy rags. So if we are trying to work on our own merit to enter into God's rest, it's not going to get us anywhere. And the prime example of those who did that was the children of Israel. They hear the law spoken at Sinai and they say, 
All that God has spoken, we will do. And of course, they failed miserably. They did not enter in because of unbelief. Every time they got tested, they were trying on their own and they messed up and then they started to doubt God. And so God is saying, if you want to enter into my rest, which is emblematic of me resting on the seventh day from my works, you need to cease from your own works and trying to do it on your own. Now what happens though? On the seventh day, God rested and he sanctified that day as a holy day. And those who enter into God's rest recognize that the seventh day Sabbath is a holy day. And so we keep the seventh day Sabbath as a holy day. And on that day, we cease from our labors from the the regular week. And we keep that day set apart, holy to God. Now, what verse 10 of Hebrews 4 is not saying is that it is not saying that we stop working altogether and just hope that somehow God provides. That's not what it's saying. As in, you know, making a living so we can support ourselves. What it's talking about is trying to work our way, you know, on the merit of our own works. But when we understand the true meaning of the Sabbath and that God rested and that we cease from our own works, the seventh day Sabbath then becomes a sign when we stop from our temporal labors during the six days of the week and we on the seventh day rest. It becomes a sign that we have stopped trying to do things our own way And we are resting in God and allowing him to work through us to enter into his rest. And another way to say it is this. The seventh day is is a holy day. God made it holy. We rest on that day. And in order to keep that day holy, we must have entered into God's rest. Which means that we must be living holy lives during the six days of the week. It's interesting, in Desire of Ages, page 283, Ellen White says, In order for men to keep the Sabbath holy, they must themselves be holy. So what's interesting is, a lot of times our young people, and I, you know, I grew up in Adventist schools and all, all that, our young people really have no conception of what it means to keep the Sabbath holy. It's a day where you can't do the things you want to do, so to speak. Oh, I can't go, you know, play outside or this or that or whatever. When in reality, the purpose of that day is a sign of our experience with God all all week long. So the Sabbath is sort of a reality check for our Christian experience, if you think about it. If Sabbath is torture for us and we can't wait for it to be over so we can watch TV and our stuff on the news or sports or you name it, and we're thinking about that all Sabbath, and then as soon as sundown comes, yes, turn on the TV and we're back to our routine, we have not entered into God's rest. Because the Sabbath is a sign of entering into God's rest all week long. And then when you come to the Sabbath, it's a beautiful day where we don't have to worry about anything else, the cares of life, that you know, we're required to work to support ourselves and to make a living and all that. But that's not the focus of our life. That's just to make a living, to pay the bills, and, and so that we can serve God. And then the Sabbath, praise the Lord, we don't have to worry about that. We rest in God. But if 
our job and our career and the cares of this life are the thing that we live for, when the Sabbath comes, we're like, oh man, I can't work on that project for my presentation at the, at the big medical meeting. Uh, there goes a waste of day. Stuff like that. You see what I'm saying? And the Sabbath should be a day where we are thankful that we don't have to worry about the cares of this life. If we aren't, if we're missing the regular things of the week, we need to go reevaluate our Christian experience with God. And so what God is saying in verses 4 and 5 of Hebrews 4 is that the seventh day Sabbath is the place where we find rest in God. If the Sabbath is the day that we find rest in God, then we are headed in the right direction in our experience with God. If, if it's not, we need to reevaluate. Now let's read... <clears throat> Verses 6 through 10. I want to volunteer to read Hebrews 4, verses 6 through 10. Let's see. Right down here. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who for merely had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would, have, God would not have spoken later about another day. And read through verse 10. Oh, okay. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Okay, thank you. So verse 6, we clearly see that it remains that some must enter into God's rest. Those to whom it was first preached did not enter in because of unbelief. Verse 7, we see that a certain day has been limited. And again, we're reminded, do not harden your hearts. And then verse 8, you know, the King James says, if Jesus had given them rest, but other versions, as your version mentioned, says it is Joshua, and the marginal reading in the King James says Joshua. So if Joshua had given them rest, then, he, then would he not afterwards have spoken of another day? And the key point here is <clears throat> Moses didn't lead the Israelites into God's rest, and neither did Joshua, even though Joshua got them into the promised land. The person who will lead you into God's rest is the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who is God and man and he's our high priest. That's how we enter into God's rest. And it's interesting, it says, it, Paul is saying, look, if Joshua had given them rest, would he not have spoken of another day? And then verse 9 it says, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. In the marginal reading it says, there remaineth therefore a keeping of a Sabbath to the people of God. So, here in the New Testament in the 60s AD, Paul is still referring to keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath. So, please don't tell me that the Sabbath was changed after Christ was resurrected or the apostles started keeping Sunday as the first day. Paul is still referring to the seventh-day Sabbath as the day to find rest in God. And this is the New Testament. 
And, if you're, and then if you make the argument, well, this was written to the Jewish people, you don't understand the purpose of the book of Hebrews. The purpose of the book of Hebrews was to tell the Jewish Christians that their Jewish ceremonial traditions were of no use and that what Christ had done had done away with their Jewish ceremonial traditions. So, anyway, minor side point. Verse 10 then clearly says, He that has entered into God's rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. So we see that the Sabbath, God rests from his works on the Sabbath, and that's emblematic of us ceasing from doing things our own way and entering into an experience with God where we live a holy life, where he lives his life through us. Now, verses 11 through 16 then say, well, verses 1 through 10 say, this is where we find the rest. And verses 11 through 16 show us this is how we enter into the rest. So I want to volunteer to read, um, let's see, let's have one person read verses 11 to 13. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the divided, dividing un, as under of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, it, but all things are naked and open unto his eyes, of him with whom we have to do. Okay, thank you. So, you know, it's kind of ironic in verse 11, it, you know, we're talking about entering into God's rest. And what does verse 11 say? It says, let us labor therefore to enter into that rest. So, what Paul is saying is, is it's not like you can just kind of float down the river to enter into God's rest. There is a part that we have to play to enter into God's rest. It's not a passive experience. And of course, we think of um, Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So certainly, the yoke that Christ offers is much better than the yoke that the devil offers, even though he tries to make it more attractive than Christ's yoke. But there is a part for us to do, to labor to enter into God's rest. And so the first 10 verses say, this is where we enter into God's rest. It's the seventh day Sabbath. Verse 11 says, we need to labor to enter into that God's rest. And then verses 12 and 13 say, you know, the word of God helps us to discern what the thoughts and intents of our heart are. And it opens up our thoughts and the intents of our heart to to God. And so when we see that, we're like, man, if God can read every last thought that I'm thinking, what chance do I have to enter into his rest? Because, um, you know, we think of the... um, during the flood where it says the thoughts of men were evil only or only evil continually and we're like you know I'm I'm human as well how can I keep from my thoughts and intents from being only evil continually 
because if they are, I'm not going to enter into God's rest. And verses 14 to 16 then tell us how to do so. So volunteer to read Hebrews 11, verses 14 to 16. So Hebrews 11, 14 to 16. If we could get the microphone. <clears throat> Hebrews eleven fourteen to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay. <clears throat> Have you ever seen verses... 14 to 16 in that context before? Maybe some of you have, but the context of Hebrews 4 verses 14 to 16 is we have a high priest who can help us. And the question is, what is it that he can help us with? And the answer is, he is able to help us enter into God's rest. And Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2 show us, hey, Jesus was truly God and Jesus is truly man. And because of those two things, it qualifies him to be our high priest. And the end of Hebrews 2 says that he is able, because he suffered being tempted, he can help us with our temptations. And so he can be a merciful and faithful high priest. And so then when we come to Hebrews 4 and, and we're looking at how, man, the children of Israel, they had an evil heart of unbelief. An entire generation did not enter into God's rest. And then we come to, to Hebrews 4 that, hey, God wants us to enter into his rest, but all the Israelites didn't. And then we see that God can, can discern the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Every thought is open to his eye. And we're like, well, how are we not going to suffer the same fate as the children of Israel? And Hebrews 4 verses 14 through 16 say, hey, Jesus Christ, who is the apostle and high priest of our profession, has passed into the heavens. So let's hold fast our profession. Don't let the thoughts and tents of your hearts run astray because we have a high priest that can help us hold fast our profession. And we, it's not like we don't have a high priest who can't be touched with our infirmities because he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. So if he who was made in all things like his brethren, as chapter 2 tells us, was made in all things like as us, and we have a high priest who is merciful and faithful, and if he was tempted in all points like as we are, there's no excuse for us to not enter into God's rest because Jesus has made the way for us. And in Hebrews 6, it's interesting, um, we see that Jesus enters into the veil, veil. He's the forerunner. And in Hebrews 10, we see that he's made and consecrated a way for us by a new and living way in Hebrews 10, 20. So Jesus... He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And so then in verse 16, it says, Let us therefore come, how? Boldly to the throne of grace, where we have a merciful and faithful high priest who was made in all things like his brethren. So he knows what it's like to suffer being tempted. So he can help us when we are tempted. And he will... Give us great mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Because the issue for God's people, when Paul wrote this to the Hebrews, and the issue for us in the time in which we live is, will we enter into God's rest? Will we hold fast our profession? 
will we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end? And the only way to do that is to come boldly to the throne of grace to get mercy, grace, and help from a high priest who became a human being. He was made in all things like his brethren, and he can help us as human beings to have that experience of entering into God's rest. And so then when you get to Hebrews 6, we see Jesus as the forerunner. He's paved the way for us. Hebrews chapter 10 says he made a new and living way that he consecrated for us through his flesh. And then in Hebrews 12, we see that he ran the race for us. So we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He was tempted in all points like as we are. And if we look unto him, we will finish the race and enter into that rest.